As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome back to a new installment of the Wide Right Podcast. It's been a while. I'm your host, Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Friday night, June 3rd, uh, around uh, 8 p.m., and uh, I've got Carlos Lelo back on the show with me. Carlos, of course, from the MIA All Day Podcast. Of course, we haven't had many podcasts lately, Carlos. Uh, You and I, I was looking at the previous episode list. I'm like, man, April 27th, you and I did a show leading with Nigel Pack and his 800 thousand dollar nil deal we answered some mailback questions then on may 11th i did um my long interview with malik rozier and i answered some questions but i haven't done anything since then and there's been a lot that's obviously gone on first of all just just how are you doing you and i see each other frequently now we played basketball together but uh well if you call that playing yes but we we, we get together <laughs> to try and, and put the ball in a hoop without right. dying Correct. I kind of walk. You guys actually hustle and and I don't really have to play defense because you guys are going to miss anyway. So I kind of just I take it easy. But um, I'm hoping we can get in. I know we have a tropical storm coming, but I'm still planning to go tomorrow. I don't know if you are or not to, to the uh, indoor courts here. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I don't have a boat available to me to be able to make it. Um, okay. So, <clears throat> yeah, you can scratch me off for tomorrow's list. <laughs> you know what? It's funny, man. Um, it's been a while. We haven't done a podcast together in a couple months. What really saddens me is that nobody noticed because nobody has been requesting it. So that really pisses me off. <laughs> I, haven't done one true. I haven't done one on mine either in a while. I came up with a concept for it this week. I've just been too lazy to record it. And the other thing is you could tell we are uh, older men in our 40s with families because it's Friday night, 8 o'clock. And rather being at a bar or, or hanging out somewhere, we're sitting down talking to each other about sports. Listen, man, that's life, right? I mean, on video, not even in person, on video. Yeah, on Zoom. Um, listen, man, that's life. That, that's what happens when you're when you're married with kids and uh, you know you work all day. And you know, you and I, uh, we talk plenty. We text back and forth plenty. Same thing with Kelvin. You've seen how many times Kelvin calls me. I've shown you the the playlist of uh, missed phone calls from Kelvin. But we obviously talk canes a lot, and there's a lot that's kind of gone on. Um, since May 11th, um, first of all, there was that hilarious uh, Nick Saban, uh, Jimbo Fisher back and forth, right, from a national perspective. That was phenomenal. Um, Which I thought was very anticlimactic, because if you're going to do that, 
you're going to call out, uh, you know, Nick Saban like that. I thought Jimbo would at least come up to him and smack him like Will Smith did Chris Rock <laughs> when he saw him at SEC media day, but no such luck. Right. That didn't happen in Destin. Um, we had the ACC uh, and actually a lot of conferences talking about, you know, getting rid of divisions, going to this three, five, five model. I did a whole story on that with, with a couple of my ACC brethren here who cover uh, ACC teams here at the athletic. Um, and then, you know, I'm looking back, I'm like, okay, I did the, uh, the story with Bruce Feldman about the Mario's hire, right. The, the, the whirlwind with that. I did a mailbag um, talking about must get recruits, uh, Kevin Steele, his defense. There's, there's a lot of different little things that we touched on. And then, of course, they go out and they hire uh, Alonzo Highsmith, which we knew was going to happen. It was inevitable, right? We've known this for a long time, that this was part of the whole deal with Mario taking over, that he wanted to bring Alonzo back from the NFL. He's been doing uh, working as a scout for over 20 years in the NFL and, and as an executive front office exec. That was a good hire. Um, I came out with my top uh, 50 player list as well. And then today we finally come out with the state of the program uh, series. So there's there's a lot we can talk about. Where do you want to start? I'm going to give you the choice uh, to, to order up first. What do you want? What's the appetizer today? Oh, well, that's a good question, man. Uh, you know, we could we could talk about the uh, the state of the program since that's the freshest. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you and let's see what we talk about here. Well, the whole theme of this, and if you can sign up again, I'm going to plug. This is where I plug the athletic. It's a dollar to sign up right now. Um, and I think of course, for the first six months or whatever it is, it's a dollar a month. Um, so it's now's the time to get in. The off season's great. Um, yeah, fantastic. I auto renewed at like uh, forty five dollars a month or something. Like uh, well, the whole theme of this was I had gone out and I talked about this. I think on one of the podcasts, but I had gone out to um, right after the spring game. Uh, Malik Rozier was working with Tyler Van Dyke, um, and that was kind of the lead to my story of how Tyler's going to basically have to adapt. Right, this is year two as a starter. You know, normally in most years coming off of the finish that he had, um, you know, the focus would be all on him. But there was a coaching change and a lot has changed in Miami. Uh, they're going to build this hundred million dollar new athletic uh, football facility, um, more than a hundred million dollars. going to be space age, according to Mario Cristobal. Um, they got uh, all this money uh, on assistant coaches and, and, and staff. So we haven't really talked a lot of X's and O's. So this, the state of the program kind of goes into the X's and O's. A little bit and really how aside from Tyler still needing a deep threat, which we'll get to, by the way, there is an update. Miami obviously went after Jordan Addison in the transfer portal. They looked at a couple of other guys. Now they've got a, a kid out of Lackawanna College, the same place that produced Bryant McKinney, a 6'4", 216-pound sort of jump ball guy who runs around a 4'5", um, who's reclassifying so that he can sign here in the summer uh he uh he's a kid uh what's his name i just talked to him a little while ago and i've already forgot yeah, and Ty tyler wanted a deep threat and you know what he's not gonna lack a wanna now <laughs> that's good <laughs> that's correct colby young okay is this kid's name he's out of binghamton new york um one of my sources reached out to me and said the kid's gonna announce he just got offered and um anyway he he had 24 catches um I don't know. Like 475 yards, nine touchdowns, something like that. 472 yards and nine touchdowns. And I talked to his offensive coordinator up there who's been coaching at the Juco level since 2010. Uh, Lackawanna has produced a few NFL guys. I asked him, I said, who does, who does he remind you of? He says, first of all, he, he's got a catch radius like nobody's ever had. He's a former basketball player. He's a guy that some schools like Virginia Tech have offered to play tight end. 
Um, but he said uh, uh, D- DK Metcalf is who comes to mind. That big, physical, uh, strong guy. Now, DK Metcalf, Metcalf is obviously phenomenal, right? I mean, he's, he's unreal. Yeah, if, if that's the comparison, then shit, sign me up. If, if this kid is half of that and Mario Cristobal is able to pull him in to, to help sort of, you know, create uh, more opportunities for Tyler to go downfield and to throw jump balls. Because basically what this coordinator told me was uh, this kid from 25 yards in, uh, he was the offense, right? Anytime they got in the red zone, uh, jump ball. In fact, I think they played Army's Juco team. Now, mind you, this is a junior college team. So they get to play Army's junior junior varsity team. And um, I guess there were nine seconds left on the clock. He goes up over three guys and, and catches the ball for the winning touchdown with, with two seconds left on the clock. And I said, well, can you do this at the power five level? There's obviously a big difference. He says, look, physically, he's got all the tools. Um, you know, again, maybe his first year here, he's got three years of eligibility left. Uh, maybe the first year here, um, you know, he's just a jump ball guy. But down the road, uh, he's got the potential to be more than that. So anyway, he's visiting Miami June Again, Colby Young, June 13th through the 15th, after he visits his, visits Tennessee and Pittsburgh. Miami's getting his last official visit. His other visits were Jackson uh, State and or Jacksonville State and Arkansas State. So anyway, that's you know, I think he went to Virginia Tech, too, didn't he? No, Virginia Tech, he hasn't visited them officially, but they were recruiting him and they've kind of fallen off from, from what uh, Colby had told me. I talked to him and his coordinator. So anyway, that's the scoop. I know those of you who want to tune in and be like, what's going on with the new receiver? That's kind of the bigger news because this kid could help Miami. Sounds like Lawrence Cager with hands. This coming season, potentially, if they get him. So we'll know probably within a couple of weeks. Um, but Mario was certainly looking. And I talked to Mario Wednesday, finally, after playing phone tag with him for three weeks. Um, to help me with the state of the program. I'll call you right back three weeks later. (laughs) Right. But the whole point, and I'm going to get back to what we were talking about getting into the state of the program. The whole point is, aside from that, right, the deep threat, really the focus is the running game and getting Miami to be much more potent than they were because if you do that well, then you help out Tyler Van Dyke, right? I mean, Miami had the the 10th ranked passing offense last season, but, um, you know, Mario's whole deal is running the football he had a whole lot of success with it at Oregon. Um, so did uh, Michigan last season when they finally became more of a running balanced type team. And so it takes good offensive linemen. It takes good running max. Um, and, and so Mario, as soon as I brought that up, he starts throwing analytics at me. And you think, oh, Mario's a recruiting guy. What the hell? He's not sitting there talking about analytics. But he starts throwing at me these numbers about rushing yards before contact, which I included in the state of the program article. So anyway, the whole focus of the article Check it out. I don't want to give away all the secrets, but the whole focus of the article is, at least from an offensive perspective, running the football. I talked to some other college coaches. I had some colleagues at the Athletic talk to other coordinators from the Big Ten. Um, I talked to uh, an offensive coordinator who was in the SEC, who's not a college football head coach, about Kevin Steele. So there's a lot of good, like little insider, you know, people give granted anonymity to talk about these things freely, um, you know, in terms right. of what these coaches do well. That's all packed in there as well as, you know, talking about the player and the roster. But that's that's what the state of the program is. Did you read the story? Did you get a chance to read it yet, Carlos? I have not. Uh, okay. It's been a crazy week. But you know what? <laughs> it's funny. One of the reasons why it doesn't feel like it's been that long since we've done a podcast together is because basically uh, whenever we speak, it's like we're doing a podcast anyway. So my <laughs> mind doesn't like register that the last time we actually recorded something was that long ago. 
But we were talking about this last week, uh, last Saturday, I think it was, and talking about why running the football is important, how it's going to differentiate Miami from everybody else in the conference and maybe even college football. Because one, nobody ever, not, not a lot of teams run the, that physical style anymore. It's all spread offense, zone read kind of stuff. And it's more finesse than it is power. And when you start adding tight ends into the game and coming downhill at people, it's shocking if you don't have to defend that on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So it changes your, your preparation. It changes how you get ready for games. And now with the limited practice hours and with the limited contact a lot of teams have while they're preparing week to week, when you come at them physically, it's hard for the defense to adjust. It'll take them a quarter, quarter and a half before they get in the flow of the game and even have to adjust at halftime. The other good thing about it is when you're adding heavy bodies into the offense that can also get downfield and get open, like an Elijah Arroyo, like a Khalil Brantley, like a Will Mallory, like a Jaleel Skinner, like a Dominic Mamorelli, what you're doing is you're forcing the defense to have to go heavy themselves. So they have to reduce now a defensive back and bring in another linebacker or at least bring in a safety down into the box to try and create some more havoc to try and stop you from running the football. And when they start doing that, then you could just hit them with the play-action passing game, which we saw a little bit of in the spring game uh, when we were hitting guys on crossers and stuff like that. So I think that's going to open things up a lot. And like Malik talked about in the piece that you uh, that you had where you uh, spent the day with Malik Rozier and on the podcast, um, you know, a lot of teams are going to start defending Tyler Van Dyke differently this year. They're going to start playing off. They'll play more quarters coverage. They'll try and give him everything underneath and make him work for it rather than hitting the deep ball because they saw not only how effective he was at it, last season but how you know how much he likes going down the field he likes doing that kind of stuff so they're going to try and take away the deep ball from Tyler Van Dyke because they saw how effective he was throwing it last season and not only that but how much he loved going down the field so it wasn't something that just he was effective at it's something he looked for on a consistent basis so when teams start playing off and start giving them everything underneath you have to find a different way to create those deep shots and how do you do that by using the running game and play action So when you suck that defense up on the play action where they have to respect it because your running game is actually good and it's effective, then you can hit them down the field with crossers or other deep shots where you don't necessarily have to go vertical all the time. And I think that's going to work. You saw that in the spring game and it'll evolve more throughout the season. Uh, I I have spent people are like, well, why haven't you done a podcast? I swear to God, if you came to my house now, Carlos, you know, I have I want to say. I don't know, 36 different windows up here of like Google Chrome because of all the research. Like I have spent weeks researching. I knew I was doing the state of the program. I'm like, okay, I got Excel sheets up, you know, data I've been collecting, comparison, you know, comparing Kevin Steele to other coordinators in the SEC, uh, looking at specific games where he did well, which ones he did bad in, trying to come up with little stats, little figures. Same thing w- with Gaddis. So if, if you were to come to my house right now and see, I have all kinds of stats and information up everywhere because this is what helps me during the year. I do all my homework in the summertime. So when I want to write stories during the year, I've got everything already uh, prepared. But there's a couple of interesting stats. And somebody criticized me <laughs> for using this stat in the story. They said, this is a stupid stat. You shouldn't use it. I, I thought you were smarter than that. One of the comments at the bottom of, of the story. But this well, is key- both things can be true. It could be a good stat. and You cannot be that smart, but that's not here nor there. Right. The key stat to know, how much should we buy into the narrative that establishing a solid running game is important to team success? The Hurricanes are 24 and three since 2016 including 7-0 and under Rhett Lashley in each of the past two seasons when they ran for at least 170 yards in a game. 
Mm-hmm. What was Miami's record when it didn't reach 170 yards? And, and by the way, I didn't just come up with that arbitrary number. There's a reason I came up with 170. Okay? I believe that's because playoff teams at least average 170, correct? Correct. And I would say Mario's teams at Oregon average, average at least 170, at least 173 out of the four seasons. OK, mm. so that gives you a little perspective here. I'm looking at the way Mario wants to run his team. OK, Mar- Miami's record when it didn't reach that mark since 2006, 23 Sub- and 25. I was going to say sub 500. Yep. 23 and 25, 24 and three when they hit 170. So you talk about, well, how important is it? Well, what about 300 yard games? Well, I looked that up. I didn't include this in the story, but I but I looked it up. Um, Miami was 19 and six uh, when it threw for over 300 yards but they were still six games over 500 when they didn't. So to me, what that shows me is like running the ball, when you can run the ball effectively, it makes a drastic difference compared to when you just throw for 300. Like throwing the ball for 300 yards nowadays, whether or not you do it, I don't think it's as effective as ball control with your offensive line and and being able to run the football in an effective and controlling manner. And, and you may disagree with that stat and say three, 300 yards is just important, uh, 300 passing yards is just important as, as 170 rushing. But to me, you look at the results on the field for Miami, I, I would take the team that can run the ball effectively and control the line of scrimmage nine times out of 10 to win a game than, than, than having a quarterback just fling it all over the place. Yeah, and people think that, you know, Joe Burrow, yeah, he had that amazing year, but they also had a hell of a running game that year. They still were able to control the ball when they ran it. Uh, and gave him opportunity to take shots off play action. I think one of the reasons why the offensive wasn't as effective last year, even when Tyler was rolling, you saw they struggled at times. There was lulls during games. It's not like they were boat racing people up and down the field every time he threw 300 yards and three touchdowns. They struggled, and they they were having three and outs because they couldn't run the football, because they had no play-action passing game, because the play-action wasn't respected. And when you don't have the play-action respected and people don't don't have to get sucked into the box and and commit numbers to the box – then that makes it more difficult on your quarterback. Um, I think, and last year is a perfect example of what being physical and running the football is. Yeah, of course, Georgia had an incredible amount of talent on their team, but they physically beat people up at the line of scrimmage. Stetson mm-hmm. Bennett was not throwing for 400 yards a game. They were winning it with running game and defense, and that's what Mario's vision is. Now, if you can get yourself to the point where, you know, you have a defense like Georgia and, and you're built up front like they are, and it doesn't matter who you have a quarterback, that's great. But Stetson Bennett was so effective. Now Miami has an opportunity to do something really special with their offense because they have a really good quarterback, possibly a Heisman candidate. Um, and if they could build that running game and give him more support with it, he can do some dangerous things. Now, it doesn't mean he's not going to throw for 300 yards just because he's run for 170. What it means is he can get to that 300 a lot more efficiently and a lot more easily with less throws than he had to in the past with less on his shoulders because more things are going to open up and the pressure is not on, not all on him. At the end of the day, what you want as an offense is you want to get to clo- as close to 500 yards a game as you can and 40 points. That's what the elite teams do. That's where the playoff teams are, close to 500 or at 500 and above and at 40 or more than 40 points a game. However you get there is how you get there. But I think this is the best way for the Hurricanes to do that, especially seeing the deficiencies on the outside right now with the receiver group. There's talent, but there's not consistency, and we don't know where we're going to get it from. If you can get it from the running backs and the tight ends, for the most part, and then mix in the receivers here and there, then that's a recipe for success. A couple more numbers I want to throw at you, uh, just so you know this isn't a, just a Miami stat. Okay, Oregon, for instance, okay, under Cristobal, the four years that he was there, the Ducks were 24-4 and four when they hit the mark of 170 rushing yards. They were 9-9 nine and nine when they didn't. 
Okay. Again, it's very similar to Miami, right? The, the numbers, I mean, the differential and the win percentage. Uh, the Wolverines, Michigan, uh, under Gaddis, they were 11 and nine in games in which they fell short of 170 yards and 12 and one when they eclipsed it. So, again, effective running game. How important is it? According to these guys, it works. And if you look at the numbers, it backs it. So, um, something else you mentioned 40 points a game. In, in all of my research, I looked at every single ACC champion, broke down every statistic, and tried to find commonalities. Number one, every ACC team since 2009 has averaged at least 33 points a game. And the last four averaged 40 points a game. So when was the last time Miami averaged 40 points a game, Carlos? Uh, that's a hell of a question. They did not, I would say 2001? 2002, the last year they made the national championship. Okay. Um, they haven't had back-to-back seasons that they've averaged over 33 points, because let's say that 33 is the mark, right, until the last two with Rhett Lashley, since 2002. So Rhett Lashley got this offense better. He made them wholly better in terms of third down. They were worse in the country with, under Dan Enos. They got above the, the halfway mark among FBS teams. So he improved things, but this rushing offense, uh, if Miami can run the ball the way they want to under Mario and Gaddis, then they're going to have the kind of balance, potentially the kind of scoring that they need to win this conference. And by the way, no coach since the ACC championship game was established in 2005, no coach has won the ACC title in his rookie season. Uh, Mario was, is trying to obviously be the first and uh, only two coaches won the division, even got to the ACC title game in their first year. Can you name them? Uh, Jimbo Fisher and Dabo Sweeney. Well, Jimbo was on the staff at FSU, so he doesn't count. Okay. And Dabo Sweeney was technically in his second year because the first year he took over. Right. So this would be the first year with a new team. It was Jeff Jagodzinski from Boston College in 07. Okay. He's, he's very well known at home at dinner time. <laughs> That's a Cuban phrase that does not translate well, but those of you who speak Spanish know what I'm and, talking about. And Justin Fuente in 2006 with Virginia Tech. Those are the only wow. two coaches who came from new programs and won in their first year. They weren't part of the staff that was already there the year before. Justin Fuente, who was out there uh, holding up signs, please feed me. I don't (laughs) have a job right now. So Mario, I think, I I think Mario has a good shot. Now, obviously there's a lot of other issues to fix on defense. Um, Tackling obviously being one of them. You read the story. Mario addressed that with me when we talked one-on-one on on Wednesday. Uh, He talked about just taking better angles, teaching the guys about leverage, knowing where the help is from, uh, not being in situations where it's you and the ball carrier, nobody else around you for 10 yards, how all of that is going to help them be a better tackling team. So um, anyway, check out the state of the program. Uh, it's one of the better ones. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, so we were talking about state of the program earlier, and I told you before that I've spent a boatload of time like just researching stuff. And when I talked to Mario on Wednesday, part of the conversation that we had, aside from just you know what he's been up to, which by the way, he told me he's uh, he tried to take one day off and go to Marco Island with his brother and had to turn around because his kids were sick. So he he literally, oh my god, literally has had no time off. He's been busy and i asked him like what are you what are you doing and he's just like look rebuilding relationships checking in with with uh with people that you know when he was out at oregon that he hadn't spoken to in a while yes they still recruited people um from florida but it's not like they loaded up on florida kids when he was out there it was more cherry picking and uh and so he's he's just been you know busy sort of reestablishing himself down here getting a foothold with coaches with players scouting ahead all the way to like 2026 and 27, um, which got me to thinking because yes, it, we're at, we're past the six month mark, right. With him since he's been coach and June is a very important month for visits. As we've mentioned earlier, this is the first recruiting weekend for official visits and, you know, two, four, seven sports and Gabby, Huruti, all the, all the great reporters who cover recruiting come out with lists. When I reach out to these guys, I'm just like, you know, I'm just trying to basically confirm, okay, which guys are really visiting and, and, and so forth. I'm of the opinion, Carlos, and, and I talked to Mario about this a little bit, that, you know, roster construction because of NIL and the transfer portal is different now because obviously uh, <laughs> both of those things sort of go hand in hand. You, you, you'd want the proven guys, the quote unquote proven guys over the high school recruits. You got to develop the high school recruits. So the transfer portal you think would trump, um, sort of, you know, in your thinking process of, of who you take right on scholarship. Mario, obviously, he, you know, he's adapted with the times. We talked about his, his model, what he uses, that Saban model, the way that they sort of plot out position by position, what they need, looking two, three, four, five, six years in advance. Um, very intricate. I'm going to write an article about it eventually. Um, but I was very interested just to hear him sort of talk about the thought process of, of roster construction. I guess my question to you is, as we begin here, um, are you still paying attention to the recruiting high school recruiting lists as much as maybe you did before uh, where you were kind of like, Hmm, I wonder who the, you know, in June uh, way before national signing day, how often were you looking and how often are you looking now? To be quite honest, I was never really uh, in, in, in looking in depth into what recruit what was happening recruiting in, in June, July, um, things really don't start heating up to me until August, September, really till the season starts and guys start making decisions um, as to where they're going to go. And, and like you said, times have changed and they continue to evolve now to the point where, like you said, a lot of gets done through the transfer portal now and not just in high school recruiting. So to me, I'm not worried about what's happening in the high school recruiting in June so far. I'm worried about, you know, what this roster looks like right now and what what the plan is moving forward. I think the fact that Mario has a plan for how he wants to construct this roster and what he wants it to look like in the future, and he knows what that's going to look like and how he's going to build to that point 
to me is more exciting than anything else. At the end of the day, you're going to get players if you win. And I think it all starts with this first team and building it as much as he can. And I think that's why he's hit the transfer portal so hard because he knows that. He knows this, this first team is his foundation. It's his stepping stone towards getting big-time high school recruits. He needs to prove it with these guys now and show the, show the rest of the country that, listen, we are a changed program. Our culture is different. Our attitude is different, and we're showing that with the results on the field so they can buy in and have more interest. Because, yeah, it's great. You can bring these guys down here for a visit. You can show them the, the new locker rooms. You can show them all the new stuff. You're going to show them the plans for what we want to do in the future. But at the end of the day, they want to know, can you put me in the league, and are we going to win games? And until you prove that on the field and you show them that, then really it's just talk. And, and as great as a salesperson as Mario is, he can only take it so far until they start producing on the field. So I think it's critical right now that he continue to load up as much as he can, plugging the holes where he can to try and build to a, a successful season, to a crescendo to where the season ends up with at least 10 regular season wins, playing for a conference championship, and who knows, backdooring into a, a, a football playoff spot if, there's, if they're really special enough, if he could fill those holes. But at the very least, getting double-digit wins, winning a bowl game, getting to the conference championship, contending in the conference championship, not getting bulldozed by Clemson, if they show up again and just showing that the program has changed, that it's taking a leap forward. I'm going to go over this quickly just because I, I don't know that I'm going to do a podcast next week. I'm going to Vegas on Wednesday after my daughter's graduation. Cause I'm going to go out there for that seven on seven. Uh, the one that Cam Newton has put together where you're going to have the Miami immortals and the South Florida express and all these national teams with a bunch of loaded kids, uh, you know, four and five star kids from all over the country going to Las Vegas for this tournament. And I'm, and, and I got it. And you may not make it back. I may not make it back. It's also my birthday. So I may not come back oh, for, for oh, a this, while. This could be a child situation from the hangover. <laughs> it could be. And I have a free Saturday night. So God, uh, God protect me, please. Okay. Um, but Miami's got this list. Okay. Uh, inside that you put this out uh, two, four, seven of all the visitors. And I'm not going to throw all of them out there. There's, there's over 23, 24 kids on this list. They don't have the Jugo kid that I reported on yet. Uh, actually they do. They finally did put them up here. Um, but anyway, the point is this first weekend, they got Olas Alinen, offensive tackle kid from uh, Finland who's been playing in Connecticut. He's a four-star <clears> kid. <throat> um, I have a, a story that I'm going to be doing with him. I interviewed him a couple weeks ago. I think Miami is in a good spot with him, even though obviously every team in the country is after him. He's a six, 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 seven, 315 pound offensive tackle who can move. Uh, his dad played, uh, in the NFL. So he comes from NFL bloodlines and, but Mario and, and, uh, coach Mirabal are at, an, are at an advantage because they're the second team that offered him a scholarship back when he was a freshman, uh, when, wow. when they were coaching at Oregon. So they have a long relationship. Uh, and a lot of the teams that offered him early on are no longer in his recruitment. So he's here this weekend, along with, uh, Tamir Robinson an edge rusher out of Pittsburgh, four-star kid and uh, Jaden Bonsu, a four-star safety out of Jersey city, New Jersey. Those are the first ones. And then next week uh, you'll have Tony Rojas linebacker out of uh, Fairfax, Virginia. I think he's got connections here in South Florida. He's Latino. Um, and then on the weekend you have uh, David Hicks, the five-star out of the Texas area out of Katy, Texas. And then of course uh, one of Miami's five commitments, Antonio Tripp, a kid out of Maryland. I spoke to him a little while back. Uh, so those are the first two sort of recruiting weekends, but, you know, talking about roster construction and, and getting back to that. One thing I spent a lot of time on Carlos, and again, this, this will be reflected in stories here coming up, but was looking at Mario's four years at Oregon. 
right? Because <clears throat> you, you, first of all, he's at a power five program that had resources that had money Yep, and, and, and they finished well. You look at their recruiting rankings. He did really well, but it's one thing to call a guy a great recruiter. And then it's another thing to go back and look and say, well, who, who did he hit on right. and how long did it take him to sort of consistently establish himself? Um, and I have some of the information here, but f- first, I guess when you think about that, what, what questions come to mind? What, what, what do you hope to see in some of these results from Mario and what his success at Oregon that, that will tell you he did a good job recruiting there? Because it's one thing to get a recruiting ranking when these kids haven't done anything. And right. it's obviously another when you go back four years later and look at it. Well, what you want to see is how many guys he's put in the league and not just put in the league. I mean, you want to see first rounders. You want to see guys that have had lasting careers. So, I mean, he was at Oregon four years. You want to see guys that are still on rosters as starters or at least role players and contributors, not guys that are only playing special teams or maybe trying to scratch and claw their way onto a practice squad and do that each and every season. You want to see guys that are actually contributing in the NFL uh, and staying on rosters as, as players that are valued by their organizations. Well, he did that. There are some guys that are, are clearly in the league from Oregon, right? We know the two main ones, Panay Sewell and now Kayvon Thibodeau. Um, the two top ranked recruits in the 2018 and 2019 classes for Oregon. Um, those guys were highly recruited, highly developed <laughs> and are in the NFL now. Um, but you go back to his first class and this is sort of a transition class, even though he was on it's sort of like a Manny Diaz situation. He was on the staff at Oregon, obviously, before he became the head coach. He was working for Willie Taggart in a co-offensive coordinator, offensive line role. Yep. Um, they signed 25 kids that year. Okay. Um, eight transferred out. Eight left. Uh, well, eight, six transferred out, two medically retired. Two of the offensive linemen that he got medically retired. So they didn't really get much in the way of production from them. If you look at career starts, okay, guys that reached double digits. You have Panay Sewell, you have Javon Holland, of course, who plays for the Miami Dolphins, Dolphins safety. second yep. second round pick. You have Stephen Jones, who is still there. He's starting right tackle and right guard in 2021, 15 starts. And then you have Verone McKinley, who was a really good player, 14-game starter for them, but went undrafted. Um, started 31 games, played over 2,000 snaps in his career. And then Travis Dye, the running back, who – had over 1,200 yards, and now he transferred to USC in the offseason. So of the 25 guys, there were only five that became double-digit game starters. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that the hit rate isn't, isn't great at that with that specific class. Right. Now, he got better, I think, as the years went on, okay? Uh, in 2019, okay, besides Kayvon Thibodeau, he signed – let me add this up here – how many kids – First of all, something is interesting. He only signed four kids to the transfer portal in his four years there. He signed 11 at Miami as soon as he took over, okay? All right. So he signed 20, he signed 27 kids in his 2019 class, and I'm going to count it here. One of them medically retired, which, by the way, that happened at Miami too, obviously, right? We remember yep. Ramon Richards and uh, DeAndre Wilder, the linebacker. I mean, it, it happens. It's not just Miami. Um, all right. So he had... And these are guys who transferred before he left. He had one, two, three, four, five. Five guys transferred before he left and three after, obviously. One of them was Logan Sagapolo, who came here to Miami. The other one was DJ James, who Miami tried to get. Um, and he, instead, he went to Auburn. And then the other one was Michael Pittman, who ended up at Florida State. Those, 
those uh, DJ James and Micah uh, Pittman, the receiver, started double digit games. Uh, DJ James was an 11 game starter last season and Micah Pittman was a 12 game starter in his time there at Oregon. But if you look at this class, Mario got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 guys, including um, a transfer, Jawan Johnson, a receiver out of Penn State, 16 guys who became starters and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, who became double digit starters. So I guess, and I talked about this uh, in my spot with big O is you know, Mario was new to the area, obviously out there when he went out to Oregon, he had to sort of establish pipelines. My thought is he's going to kind of go through the same thing here. Like these first two recruiting classes. And, and we talked about this a little on the phone. It's like you come in, other schools have been recruiting kids in this area a lot longer than Mario has. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but it, it's, he's also, when he first was, was working at Oregon under with Willie Taggart, he, he was, uh, yeah, co-offensive coordinator, but he didn't have control of the recruiting board and how they executed the recruiting plan. When he took over as head coach, then that was, that was his baby then. At that point, he right. got to decide what the recruiting board looks like, who we're going to target, and how we're going to do it. So I think you, see, you also see that shift in the way they started attacking the, the lines of scrimmage and the types of players that were going after. And that's why I think they became a little bit more successful as time went on, aside from the winning. The one thing I'll say is, First of all, they were better coached at Oregon, right? Because if you go back and you look at Miami, and I did, I went back all the way to 2016, basically since the post-Golden era, um, post-Anofrio era. And you go back and look at 16, 17, 18. Miami had double-digit starters kind of similar to, to Oregon, where you know it was a handful, maybe eight to ten guys who became double-digit starters in classes that had 25 kids. Um, but they had so many kids leave, too. Right. Like there's so many yep. departures um, in Mario's case. I would say half of the departures came after he left. So a, a lot of kids didn't want to leave Oregon, per se. You know, they kind of stuck around. That's a good thing. Um, and, and, and of his last couple classes, I mean, the young guys that he left behind, there is a good team. For, for Dan Lanning there. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you have Noah Sewell, who's going to be, you know, the brother of Panay Sewell, who's one of the best linebackers in the country. Uh, Chris Hudson, who's one of the top receivers. Um, you have uh, TJ Bass, who's a, a two-year starter for them at, at left guard. Um, you know, he's got a bunch of other young guys who were just sort of getting in the mix here, even 2021 guys um, that just came in as true freshmen. So Mario, to me, in my study of this, essentially, Carlos, is what I'm trying to say is, like Mario got better as he as he as he did over there. But in the beginning, it was a struggle. And I think it's going to be the same thing here. Like, I, I, I don't think you just come in and all of a sudden you're, you're hitting home runs out of the park with player evaluation. Every coach needs a little bit of time to kind of make a few mistakes and adjust because they, they haven't been recruiting these guys for two or three years. And for Mario, he said that was the secret at Alabama. They got so far ahead in the game that your evaluations of these kids are so much more spot on because you're spending more time looking at them. Yeah. And not only that, but let's, let's, let's remember, like it's not only that he has to start building these relationships and he has to start, uh, you know, getting some traction in the recruiting battles, but just because he doesn't land those guys doesn't mean he's not evaluating them properly. He might want guys. He might want to uh, be attacking certain players that he knows are going to be a great fit for him and produce, but he just can't land them yet because 
like you said, he's rebuilding the recruiting infrastructure here in Miami and starting those relationships. So as time goes on, as you said, as those relationships get deeper and the roots go deeper here with the programs and the Pop Warner Leagues and all the things that he has to do, um, then the recruiting classes will improve if and only end if they're continuing to win. So that you have to see it's, it's a balance. You have to see the results on the field <clears throat> and build those deep relationships and do that player evaluation. Everything plays into each other because like you said, you can have great classes and guys that go on to play in the NFL and be double digit starters and all these things, but not produce wins because you don't have uh, the, the right scheme or you're not coaching them properly. You're not developing, developing them properly, hanging on to guys. So it's all, it all plays off of each other. And I think the, at the very least, Mario has a plan and knows where he wants to get to and has a roadmap on how to get there. Now, I will say the four transfers that he took, all of them became <clears> like <throat> there were no Tommy Kennedys. Remember Tommy Kennedy? Yeah, there, well, there wasn't a guy who came in and didn't play. Right. Uh, the Miami Manny Diaz, he did well. I, I would call 10 out of 10 to 11 out of the 17 transfer portal pickups that Manny Diaz made in his in his time here. I would say they were they were, if not home runs, doubles and triples. He did well. <laughs> The other, yeah. he, he did have a few duds. Mario's four transfer portal guys all became starters, um, but none of them, you know, became uh, NFL guys. And I think part of it is because they left school a little too early. Uh, a couple of them went in undrafted free agents. This kid, Devin Williams uh, from USC, who came over, led the team in, in, in receptions last year uh, for, for Oregon. Went to the NFL, went undrafted. Um Anthony Brown, his quarterback, people are like, oh, he was he wasn't that great a quarterback. Listen, he still got them to the Pac-12 title game. OK, yeah. uh, and he was a really good runner, really good fit in that offense for what they did. Um, something else I did with this, because I was curious, I'm like, well, what states has Mario been recruiting? Right. Which where did he pull kids in from Oregon and, and how does that help um, Miami? So which. Which states, just off the top of your head, and I know you don't know Oregon's roster, but where do you think the majority of the, of the Oregon kids came from? I would imagine uh, California, Nevada, Texas. You'd certainly right with California, but I'm going to go. I'm going to count the states here. OK, all right. Uh, Give me how many states and I'll try and rattle off. All right. Here we go. He uh, he got Alabama. He got four out of Alabama. He got seven out of Arizona. Mm hmm. Uh, I want to say here, I mean, California was clearly the biggest state, but I'm going to go alphabetically because I put all these kids in order. Basically, they're, this is out of high school, by the way, not JUCO or transfers. Out of California, he got 39 kids. Um, out of Colorado, he got three. Florida, three. Georgia, three. Hawaii, three. Illinois, one. Maryland, two. Missouri, one. Mississippi, two. Nebraska, one. Nevada, three. North Carolina, four. New York, one. Oregon, OK, he only got four kids in his four years there out of Oregon. He got the four best players because Oregon only produces four good football players a year. <laughs> One out of Pennsylvania, two out of Tennessee, only three out of Texas. Well, wow, that's surprising. Uh, six out of Utah. OK, wow. Uh, and one out of Washington. Now, if you go and you look and you, and you say, well, where did the good players come from? Arizona, who got seven, that's among the most of the of the sort of plan B states. Uh, three of those kids transferred three out of the seven transferred out and only one of them became a starter. That's the quarterback who eventually transferred to Texas tech. Um, so he didn't have a whole lot of success there in Arizona. You're thinking, Oh, maybe Miami now, right? They signed seven kids. You're only looking at it on the surface. 
I did this because I wanted to see where did he really have success? Well, California, obviously he kicked ass. He got 39 kids from there. He's got a bunch of, you know, yeah, just based on volume, you're going to have more based production. on volume. He's going to have more production. So his relationships are better there. Um, Hawaii, really one kid who became a, a starter in his time so far. Um, Utah, I would say is probably the second best state. And that's because he got Noah Sewell and Panay Sewell out of there, as well as um, a couple of other, players and offensive lineman who starts and, and Jeffrey Bassa safety, a 2021 safety when they're starting seven games last year. So, you know, it's interesting to me, this all comes into play, right? What kind of relationships you have. And then the other thing I wanted to start to do, I haven't done the research yet is look at specifically Jamila Adai. Where was he good at? Right? right. Obviously when he was recruiting for, for, for Georgia, uh, and West Virginia before that, where are his best connections? I haven't that that's going to be a part of a story eventually, but I wanted to share a little bit of this because I think as, as football connoisseurs that we are right, we look at the recruiting ranks like, Oh, Mario had the number six class. They had the number seven class. They had uh, the number 12 class and the number 11 class. They, he's going to come in here. He's going to kill it. Right. It's like, no dude, like it takes a little bit of time. And, and that's basically what Mario was telling me is look, I'm, I'm trying to fix some of these relationships. It's right. not that Manny B has necessarily crapped the bed with some of these coaches and got them angry, but there's a certain way um, that you got to sort of work with these coaches, seven on seven, high school, whoever around these kids. And you kind of have to reestablish yourself because he was way away for a long time. Listen, man, it's, it's, it's like sales, right? I think the number one rule in sales is, or one of the main rules in sales is people buy from people they like, right? Mm-hmm. If you are offering me the same product as someone else at the same price, or maybe even a little bit less, but I don't like you, I'm going to buy it from the person I like. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. If you have relationships with people, they are willing to, uh, you know, go above and beyond to take the extra step, take the go the extra mile in your direction because you've shown them something that they like, and you've built trust with them. You built a relationship. You built a connection that makes them want to help you. Uh, and ex- have an exchange with you. If you don't have that, if you're just cold and business-like, at the end of the day, I mean, it really doesn't make a difference. They're not gonna just they're not going to point kids your way because it doesn't make they don't care. There's no emotional connection. There's no investment in the relationship. So why should I help you? And and I think that's where Mario is really going to make a big difference. And another point to the recruiting rankings, I think the biggest change that Mario is going to have from Oregon to Miami, aside from <clears throat> the built-in recruiting uh, hotbed here in Florida, that's at you know at his fingertips. He's built a staff that he's never built before. He's had great staffs in the past, and that's, but he's identified these guys early in their careers and brought them along and put them together, and they, then they've developed into other things. But he's never had a staff with so many developed and, evalu- and, and established coaches like he has now. It's an Alabama-level staff. So you might have the 15th-ranked recruiting class or the 20th-ranked recruiting class at the end of the day, but what these coaches can contribute in terms of player development may leap you forward those extra five, 10 spots and create more production from these guys in the long run or use more of those B plus bodies and better ways and create more wins at the end of the day. And, and that's ultimately what, what we didn't get enough out of, right? Out of the coaches that were here previously was, look, you've had talented kids. And I, and I started breaking down Miami's roster the same way, right? Like put, put all these kids together from 2016 and look all the way down and start counting five-star, four-star. How talented were they really? And how many of those, those talented players panned out? Um, there's a whole lot of four-stars that were nothing. I mean, there. if I were to tell you, I think out of the first three classes, if you go 2016, 2017, and 2018, 
And you just look at those three classes, the Mark Richt classes. Okay. So when he took over uh, the transition year all the way through, and there's 40 kids who didn't finish their careers out of Miami out of 66. That's insane. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous guys who ended up leaving uh, either as grad transfers or what, like just basically disgruntled thirds, two thirds of the kids. And, and, and then the rest of it is what became good. Like you had a lot of 20 game starters and 30 game starters and 40 game starters, but then you look at it like, well, how many of them are first round picks? Gregory. Oh, yeah. so, what, what was their production? Like, and at the end of the day, how many of those guys would have become 20 game starters if the other ones hadn't left? Correct. Yeah. I, I mean, it, you, you can't have that kind of a miss rate with, with your guys. Like you can't have 40 out of 66 really, you know, leave because they're disgruntled or, or, or didn't, didn't pan out for whatever different reason. Now, some of those kids left as grad transfers, um, but they, you know, I would say maybe five or six of them that left like the, the Nessa Silveros, um, like that was really one of the few guys that you still would have said, okay, talent wise, he could have still helped you. But the rest of them, Mark Pope, um, D Wiggins, D Wiggins, Gervin Hall, like you kind of you played those guys because you had no choice. Bradley Jennings. Uh, yeah. Patrick and, Joyner. Yeah. So, left. I mean, so roster construction to me, it, it's so important that you are a good evaluator. And then once you get those players that are good, you develop into into the, the kind of players that they need to be. And I would say just looking at those three years in particular, there were a lot of disasters, man. Just a lot. Yeah. Of, and then you go to 2019. It's like your two best recruits, your two highest ranked guys gone. Like they didn't do anything here um, in 2019. So like it, it's not a good trend. In the end, there were some good players that came out of those classes. I'm not like Zion Nelson and Ja'Kai Clark at the end of 2019. Those guys became reliable, good starters for you. But there weren't many. In fact, you look at the 2019 class of the high school kids that they signed. And there's about 20 of them. Only three have become double digit starters. That's insane. That's terrible. Since 2019. Then you have guys like Keontra Smith and Jafari Harvey, and you have a Jared Harrison Hunt who's right there on the cusp. The three guys who were double digit starters are to Corey couch, Zion Nelson, Ja'Kai Clark from high school. Um, you had the transfers, you had the Jalen Phillips, you had the Bubba Boldens and, and uh, KJ Osborne who came in and, and were good, but those were one-year guys where you win is developing the four-year guys. And so far you look at that 2019 class. Um, I, and that's still recruiting by the way. And it's not just recruiting talent. It's retention. People right. think that recruiting is just getting the kid there. You continue, you continue to recruit the guys on your roster because right. at the end of the day, not everybody's going to be happy with their playing time and their role on the team or where they are in the depth chart how you communicate your vision to those kids and to get them to buy into the program, to sit on that bench and eat shit every day when they're not on the field and not playing and having to stand on the sideline with a jersey on and jeans and making them believe that at some point that's going to be them and having them wait and be patient, uh, that's selling too. That's recruiting too. And that's a skill that Mario has and he can develop within this program. If he can get guys to stay longer and develop and see the light at the end of the tunnel before they bail, that's going to make a huge difference in the program. I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses we've had over the last 20 years is guys just bailing early for the NFL or transferring out. Yeah. And, and NIL will play a factor in that, obviously, you know, schools coming after kids, if they want to, if they want to take some of the good ones away or, or, or essentially keep them here from, you know, going to the NFL because they can make a little money. All of that is going to change here in the years to come. But 
you know, that's the recent history, right, of, of Miami losing some guys, you know, the Trajan Bandies of the world who, who, who yep. entered the draft and went uh, undrafted. Jeff Thomas entered their draft, went undrafted. I mean, there's there's examples of those guys who more Walton. Right. Guys that were sort of cornerstones, you know, of your team, not necessarily greatest players ever at UM, but cornerstones of your team, leaders, important players, and you lose them and then and, and they don't, I mean, they left for no reason, essentially. So, um, and, and this year too, I mean, Charleston Rambo had one year of eligibility left, right? I mean, at some point, yeah. somebody's got to have that conversation with them and say, Charleston, um, doesn't look like you're going to be more than a sixth or seventh round pick if, if that, but you know, everybody's situation is different. I'm not here to criticize. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, retention, like you mentioned is a, is a, is a big deal. Um, all right. I, I want to get to something else. We spent a lot of time talking about sort of roster construction and i'm glad we, we were able to talk a little bit about mario's past because i wanted i wanted to share some of the info i came across but the alonzo highsmith thing that's something i think people wanted us to talk about i did get messaged uh from a couple of readers and listeners saying can you guys talk a little bit about alonzo highsmith higher and, and how do you, i'll phrase it this way because i did a top 50 right player ranking let's do <laughs> let's do a top higher ranking for mario um where does alonzo fit in in the top five in your mind is he number one or is he below the coordinators? Is he below Aaron Feld? The, the um, it, it depends. It depends on on what your what category you're going to use. Like what what are you going to use to quanti- quantify the higher? From an excitement standpoint for the fan base, I would say it's top five. From an actual impact, uh, I mean, long term, maybe top five. Uh, immediately this season, I, I don't think it's going to be a top five higher. I think. This season's biggest hires are going to be, you know, Josh Gaddis. I think to me, number one is the offensive coordinator because they needed to replace Rhett Lashley with someone that could bring in a system that fits Miami and can continue to develop TVD uh, and build on the strength of, of your quarterback. And number two is Kevin Steele because you needed a defensive coordinator to fix that mess on the other side of the field um, it, it, because it was just disastrous for the last couple of seasons. Um, to me, Charlie Strong at number three is a linebackers coach bringing him in, a guy who's got head coaching experience, um, a guy who was coaching the NFL, a guy who's been a, an elite defensive coordinator in college football, to bring him in from the NFL to be your linebackers coach, to me, that's a, that's a home run hire right there. Uh, number four to me would probably be Jason Taylor, even though he's not a position coach. But to bring a Hall of Famer into your staff, a guy that's a proven, successful NFL player at the highest level, um, to basically tutor your defensive ends. Um, that's invaluable to me. That's incredible. Uh, number five to me would probably be Joseph Adai. I think he's uh, a lot of people are very high on him. Uh, you mentioned in the past Jam- that he could be Jamil Adai. Jamil Adai. Sorry, yeah. Joseph Adai. I'm, I'm talking about a running back from LSU from back in the day. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm stuck playing NCA 2014 in my mind. So um, Jamil Adai, who's, who's a head coach in, in, in waiting, a guy that's going to be elevated to a head coaching position at some point in his career, young, talented, hungry, and, and at a, at taking over a position group that has been disappointing for several seasons now at the defensive back. So I think his ability to recruit, his ability to develop those defensive backs uh, will be huge for this team. So that to me is my top five. Um, you know, I would put maybe eh, probably five, a would be Jamil five B would be Frank Ponce as your, as your, uh, quarterbacks coach because you've taken an offensive coordinator from a uh, you know group of five school who's been very successful year in and year out their offense was good year in and year out uh, you saw what they did this past season you know they gave the hurricanes headaches you turned chase bryce into a, a competent quarterback 
um, had a great system over there at Appalachian State. And I think his development of TVD is going gonna, is gonna to take TVD to the next level. And I think at some point when Gaddis gets a head coaching job, probably in the near future, Frank will take over this offense and just continue doing great things with it. Yeah, I, I, I feel like you could. There's so many great hires. I, I'll, I'll categorize your list as on field, right? As on field right. assistance. I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit different since Alonzo's sort of off the field. Um, I, I would say Dan Radakovich is number one uh, from obviously the athletic director is so important in this. We saw, you know, Blake James obviously just got hired at Boston College, so he found a new job. I wanted to make sure I mentioned that, uh, former Kane's athletic director. But Radakovich is so important to this all. Carlos, because yep. you need a guy in place who is going to support Mario at every need. And, and right now, you know, you talk about Kirk Herbstreet's comments right back in the middle of the, the beginning of the season there. And I can tell you from talking to Rudy Fernandez, we have conversations every now and then there is great alignment, according to Rudy, with with the school administration, Dan Radakovich and Mario, that when it came to hire Alonzo, Basically, the school said, whatever you need to do, Mario, it's your decision. And, and, and they empowered him and they fully trust him to do it. And Mario did it because he knows the value of, of hiring a guy like Alonzo. And, and that doesn't happen, Carlos, mm-hmm. if you don't have a guy like Dan Radakovich. Yeah, absolutely. Who has been at the highest level of this game <clears throat> at Clemson, winning a championship, winning multiple championships as an athletic director and understanding that college football is different. I don't want to say, you know, um, that, that Blake James was worried because I think he was interested in hiring um, Alonzo Highsmith too a couple of years ago. As I wrote in my article, Alonzo said, you know, they had conversations, but it never came a, a firm job job offer. Um, part of that, I think, had to do with Manny Diaz. I think part of it is understanding the hierarchy and understanding that you have to work hand in hand and the importance of it. And so, and man, we talked about this like a year ago when it, were, when it was rumored that Alonzo was going to come on board. We specifically said uh, that I think I remember saying that it would take a head coach that is secure in his position, a guy that's confident yep. in, in what he's doing with his team, and an athletic director that also is not fearing for his job, that is also very secure in his job and the way he performs to be able to hire a guy like Alonzo Highsmith and bring him on board. And look at what it took. It took Mario and it took Dan Radakovich. You can't have that with Blake James and Manny Diaz because they both be looking over their shoulders and feeling as though they have to assert their dominance and show who's in charge, as opposed to in this situation where Alonzo, it's clearly coming on board just to be another set of eyes and contribute to the greater program. Right. And, and I think in this instance, the reason I would rank Radakovich one as well is there's some, the next big phase is this, the new facility. Right. And, and I know people are going to say, well, if you win, kids are going to come to UM no matter what. I agree with Mario. You got to have it all now. You got to have it all. You got to have NIL. You got to have the facilities. And it's such a big factor. And Radakovich was there for everything that they built at Clemson. He oversaw all of that renovation um, that involved Dabo Sweeney and and the football program there. And so he's got to fundraise, right? He's got to get money. Uh, The school's going to pump some money into it, obviously. But a lot of it, of that 100 million plus, by the way, it could be 175 million. Okay, I don't know how much they're going to spend, but you can go look up. You and I were doing that the other day, right? We were looking at right. the the Alabama facilities and Ohio State and all the best ones in the country. Mario calls this space age. It's going to be a space age football facility that'll take three to four years to get built. But the point is, it, it's being done, and Miami's investing the dollars, and they're going to go out and get the dollars. And Radakovich is going to be behind it all. So to me, off the field hires, he's number one. But I would say 
after that, Alonzo's number two. And and really, I'll say this because Mario brought him up. I didn't even ask Mario about Alonzo. I figured let me let him mm-hmm. sort of let, enter the conversation the way he wants it. But he already talked about how Alonzo is going to be a part of, you know, these football camps that they're doing right with all the high school kids. It got canceled today because of the, this storm that's rolling in. But um, the, the one for tomorrow. Um, but the point is, he uh, is, is already going to be involved sort of evaluating people out there. OK, yeah. he's going to be he's going to be an extra set of eyes. He's going to be um, involved in everything that that Mario does. And Mario wants him to be Mario wants Alonzo's experience. You think about where he's been. And, and if you haven't read my story yet at The Athletic, I did get the chance to, to talk. I know other people did, too. But I wrote a story specifically from, from Alonzo's perspective of what he thinks he's going to do here. Um, and and I think, you know, what was interesting to me is how much he talked about how much he's learned from older people in the game, you know, from his time at Green Bay, talking, talking to scouts, Ron Wolf, who was overseeing, you know, the Green Bay sort of revitalization when they finally won a Super Bowl again with Brett Favre. Like Alonzo's of the ilk that, you have to learn from from predecessors. You have to learn from older people, even if the game is different. There's something in the way that they talk that helps sort of put everything into context. And I think in a lot of ways that has been missing at Miami, that older, wiser, <clears throat> smart yep. guy in the room who has been there and seen how much college football has changed and seen how much NFL football has changed. That is an invaluable uh, asset to have in your room. Yeah, and I think... What Alonzo also brings, which is sort of uh, an interesting thing to me, is he creates the final link in the championship chain for Miami's uh, dynastic program. He's, he's the one that's the link to that first national championship. And then you have Mario linking you to the teams of the 90s. And then you have Ed Reed linking you to the final national championship team. And they're all on staff now. Yeah. And they can tell you how each era was built and how they got there and how they linked that program, what the through line was through every program to get every, every team to get to that five or that fifth national championship, how we went from one to two to three to four to five and how they became the most feared team in college football at their height. How did they build it and what things were similar, what they changed. But at the end of the day, they can show you how they were interconnected by the way they prepared and they approached the game. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to get to a mailbag and we'll, we'll get to some of these questions. Um, but ultimately, I, I mean, just look back on the last six months and I know we haven't done a ton of podcasts. So I feel like we're, we're covering a lot in this show and I apologize. For we're making the- up for lost time, man. So don't, <laughs> don't, get, don't complain about the runtime. Don't complain that we're talking too much. If you don't want to hear us talk, then don't look at the podcast. We'll, we'll do a YouTube channel specifically for you just to stare at us and our hot dad bots. That's it. There you go. I, I, I do. I do appreciate though that we, that we were able to um, talk a little bit specifically about each of these issues and, and kind of delve deep into some of the more pertinent ones, because I, I, I the way I cover this team, Carlos, Look, I wrote eight articles last month for The Athletic, okay? 
and seven of them were about the Canes. Another one was about NIL with with group of five schools. I, I'm not writing a ton of Miami Hurricane stories in the offseason, and I'm not doing a ton of podcasts, clearly. Um, so I'm I, whenever we can kind of dive deep, I feel like in these podcasts, I can do a better job talking about it than I can writing about it. Okay. Sometimes it's just so complicated writing, getting interviews, framing things. Then you, you know, you, like I told you, I've got 8,000 Chrome windows up here with so many different topics that I could get into that this homework helps me for the whole season. So there's going to be more that comes out of this. So yeah, you're like a, like the Miami hurricanes version of a beautiful mind. You've got stuff scribbled all over the place. Posting notes. It's crazy. <laughs> it, it is crazy, but I, I want to get to some of these questions. Well, well, first, before we get to the questions, yes, you, you brought up stats earlier. We were talking about, yes, you know, what uh, the numbers of rushing for, 200, for 170 yards and all that kind of stuff. So I yes. pulled the numbers on the last, the last eight national champions. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you think they averaged rushing per game, passing per game, total yardage and points per game? All right. I, I would say the defensive numbers clearly are going to be more impressive than the offensive numbers. I'm just going offensive numbers here. O- offensive numbers, I would say in the 80s, I would say probably over 30. No, no, points. last eight national champions. Last oh, eight. you're talking about, okay, I thought you were just so from 2014 to this past season. Oh, yeah. I, I, I would say every team has averaged over 40 points to win a championship over the last eight years. 42 points is the average. Right. Okay. And how many rushing yards per game do you think? Uh, 175, 180, 210. Okay. And passing yards, 300, 287. Okay. So, so the average total, total offense is 496. Again, that 500 point, that 500 yard number and 42 points, but they're doing it with more balanced offense. The one team that was the anomaly, obviously is that 2019, uh, LSU team that threw for 402 yards and ran for 167. Right. But Alabama the following year was 358 passing and 184 rushing, and they actually averaged one-tenth of a point more than that LSU team on offense. Yeah, It was 48.5, and LSU was 48.4, which is crazy. I mean, just offense has, has blown up through the roof, obviously, in recent years. It's so, it is so vitally important to your success. I, I think, you know, you have a halfway decent defense, which I think Miami can have. I think with the young kids that they've got on this roster, um, the James Williamses, the Leonard Taylors, um, you know, I think Chase Smith, once he finally gets healthy at linebacker, I mean, there's there's players on this team that I think could could make Miami a top 40 defense this year. If you can hold teams to 20, 21 points a game, you're going to be highly successful. Yeah, and I, and I think they can get to that. Um, and I think Kevin Steele, I mean, I, we didn't even get into Kevin. I, I have, I literally spent four days researching Kevin Steele, okay, and comparing him to SEC coordinators, what he did in every single game, okay, calling them. Uh, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Um, that sounds very stalkerish, but I, it, it, it excites me. <laughs> it, it is a lot, but um, he, 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 the job he did, you go and look at his five years, and, I, and I'll throw some numbers at you right off because we didn't have a lot of, let me go to page 64 here out of 8,000. Um, here we go. Steele SEC history, Miami defense versus Kevin Steele. Okay. Um, Manny Diaz's defense is the last two years, and this is only against FBS opponents. So they're not, if you go to like collegefootballstats.com and like, that number doesn't match up. No, it's because I put in versus FBS opponents. I don't want to know. I don't want to take in when they killed an FCS team. Okay, I want I want this against the teams that there are contemporaries. Okay, 
Miami's defense uh, the last two years, Manny Diaz's first four years, they gave up 20 points, 21 points, 21 points, 22 points. Um, In the last two years, 27 and 31. Yep. Um, By the way, this is something else (laughs) I'll throw at you. Um, The 2016 defense had 16 starters who were drafted for Miami. The 17 defense had eight. The 18 defense had six. The 19 defense had four. The 20 defense had three. And the 21 defense had one. What does that tell you, Carlos? (laughs) Yeah, they were getting worse over time, and Manny was doing a bad job of talent validation. I mean, that's why I love doing this, because this gives you like when you can when you can create these Excel sheets and, and put all this stuff together, it's like the picture comes together. It's because you can look at everything one by one, uh, but you it's like when you put it all together on a map, it, it paints a picture for you. You got all very right. excited. You look like Doc Brown when he, when he started explaining the flux <laughs> capacitor to Marty. Auburn. OK, Kevin Steele. He got in there. He took over a defense that was giving up 26 and a half points per game in 2015. That defense in 2015, by the way, had Carlton Davis, who was a second uh, second round pick. He had six NFL guys. The Auburn 16 defense, okay, went from giving up 26 and a half points to FBS opponents to 18 and a half in his first season. Right off the bat, he had one more NFL starter on his defense in the, in the previous season. The next year, he gave up 19 points. Um, six starters were drafted off of that defense. Um, in 2018, he gave up 20 points. There were seven starters drafted off that defense. And then in 2019, 21 points, six starters drafted off of that defense. His last defense gave up a shade under 25 points a game, um, which was his worst defense at Auburn when Gus Milzahn was getting fired. There were only two starters on his defense that were drafted. So you and give in the SEC. And in the, yes, against real, SEC real effing teams. Okay. SEC West. Like, like that to me, it, it, it paints the picture of what you need to know. Like, and look at LSU when he first came back and let's not forget, this is a guy. And I wrote about this in, in the state of the program. This is a guy who his last game at Clemson, you want to tell everybody what happened to him in his last game at Clemson in 2011. Do you know? Um, I didn't get fired. <laughs> He clearly got fired, but he got destroyed by Geno Smith in the Orange Bowl. Remember that game? Oh, was that the 70 something point game? That was yeah. the 70 point game where Clemson literally got run off the field. And Kevin Steele at that point, okay, that was what? He's 64 now. Let's do the math. He was 54 then, um, 53. He had been coordinating, he had been on really good staffs. He basically went back to Alabama and he was part of the rehab program for Saban for two years. And then he went to LSU at the end of um, Les Miles. Les Miles. Right. And so he took over defense. Now, he had good players. When I tell you this defense at LSU, you're going to be like, wow. Okay. He had Jamal Adams, Pro Bowl safety, Tredavious White, Pro Bowl cornerback, um, Deion Jones, Pro Bowl linebacker from the Falcons, Kendall Beck with a third round pick who played for the Bucks, and then Devon Godchow and Jalen Mills. Jalen Mills was a first team All American. He had six guys that got drafted. Okay, um, they didn't put up ridiculous numbers, but I mean, they still only gave up twenty four points a game against FBS opponents, which was thirty fifth in the country. They gave up a little over five yards of play, which was thirty first, and they were sixteenth in sack. I mean, he made the team so much better. They went from one hundred and twenty first in sacks to close to three a game as soon as he got there. 
Um, the, the one area they got worse was red zone defense. But anyway, we're getting in the weeds here. My point is, even in that one year, okay, and yes, he had some good players, like he still put up some respectable numbers in the SEC West, right? Yep. Which has Alabama, which has Auburn, which has all these teams that have great offensive players that get drafted every year. Um, so the guy is going to come in here, and I think he's going to have success. Dude. I think, listen, if, if you're going to see the Miami defense giving up points and giving up plays, it's not going to be because guys are out of position now. It's not going to be because guys don't know where they're at. There's not going to be a lot of blown coverages. There's not going to be a lot of linebackers running one direction and the ball going the other way. There's not going to be a lot of defensive linemen out of their gaps. It's going to be just because the other team was physically better, they executed a better play. And that's the way you want it. Listen, if you're better than me and you can beat me, then beat me. But don't let me beat myself. And that's what you want to see. You want to at least be competitive to the point where you have a chance. And if physical ability beats you, then so be it. But you don't want the mental mistakes to pile up. And those be the reasons why you're not in games. All right, let's get to the questions and then we'll wrap this up because we are getting long. All right. This is from Daniel. Um, ITM edit on Twitter. The Diaz era beat us down with constant losing of major recruits. We have every reason to believe Mario will turn that around. But until those type of recruits start signing, a level of pessimism remains for me anyway. Thoughts on when they on when the turn may happen around uh, may happen beyond winning games. All right. Um, this is kind of the in-depth conversation we had about recruiting, right? Like how long it takes to turn things around. I, I think in this situation, the, the one thing Miami has going for it right now, okay? Number one, um, the staff that Mario has, as you mentioned, Carlos, um, like that's going to attract kids. Number two, Florida State and Florida are down. They're not great right now. No. You don't have a lot of in-state competition per se. Um, Clemson is not the old Clemson that was dominating. Uh, so I think Mario, if they can win this first year, I think it's going to turn quickly. Yeah. But if they go eight and four and Florida goes 10 and two, and all of a sudden Florida state starts to win, I think the majority of the in-state kids are not going to go to Miami and you're going to be kind of <laughs> stuck in the, in the malaise that you've been in. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I agree, because at the end of the day, it's the same old Miami, right? You have to prove that it's different, and that's what we were talking about earlier. You have to prove that this program's taken a leap and things have changed, and you can't do that until you start winning games. So I think 9-3 and three at minimum is what they need to do. I think 10-2 and two is very possible, and I think that's where they need to get to to really start attracting some of these big-time recruits. Um, and I think the other thing that plays into Mario's advantage is that he doesn't necessarily have to hit 100% of the kids in Dayton Broward and Palm Beach because he's got the ability to recruit nationally now, he could cherry pick kids from everywhere around the country and fill in the gaps. He doesn't have to live and die like Manny had to do on signing days so often. Oh, is this kid finally going to pick me? Am I going to sway these kids um, and have them come here and end up losing at the last second? He can go out there and get the kids he needs from other places if he feels that it's not going in the direction he wants with the in-state kids. Remember when we talked about the 2020, right, the COVID year in, in recruiting 21, how Miami yep. got 10 of the 24 blue chip kids? in their backyard. Yep. Um, they went back to two of 12. <laughs> when things this got past year. Right. And, and Mario, Mario got Nigel Lee Kelly, the one, um, by the way, this, this is a disturbing stat since 2019, there's been um, 19 kids who were ranked in the two, four, seven sports top 100. Okay. Those are the four cycles combined. Um, where do you think Miami is in terms of getting those kids? How many do you think they got? Uh, three. Correct. 
<laughs> he hit it on the head. Three. Uh, that's as many as Georgia and as Alabama, who are second. Florida leads the way with five. And that's Dade, that's Dade and Broward, top 100 kids. That's got to change. I asked Mario in our conversation, I said, when I throw out the stat to you that Miami hasn't signed the consensus <laughs> best player in Dade and Broward combined since 2012, you say what? He said, uh, ouch. He said, uh, we go off the guy that's number one on our board. That's what matters. And he, he was stunned that Wesley Besaint, by the way, wasn't uh, number one in the city. He thought Wesley Besaint was the best player. When I told him it was Shamar Stewart, uh, his response was, well, we'll see where, where those guys are in two years. So oh, look at that. I like that. <laughs> a little cockiness. A little cockiness. All right. More, uh, more from Daniel here. He says, uh, uh, I guess, I mean, do you think we'll start to see big time recruits jump on board before signing day and stick? Kind of like how James Williams seemingly committed out of nowhere and stuck to it on game of day. Um, on signing day. Well, James Williams didn't commit to his, uh, didn't stick to his commitment. He decommitted and then jumped back. I don't, I don't think it's a good thing to me. I think a lot of these kids and I, and I, and this is another one of these research extravaganzas that I went on. I looked at the top 100 players from last year, how many of them, you know, when they committed, was it after a visit? Was it after attending a game in person? I mean, I have all kinds of research here, Carlos. I'm not going to get into that now because that's it's another headache for me to look through. Um, but off the top of my head from remembering that information, I think a lot of the, the, the recent top elite kids, um, unless they're committed to Alabama or Ohio State, they don't stick. <laughs> so right. it's not good to be the first school that is uh, an elite kid commits to because odds are he's going to flip. And the only ones that keep those kids are Ohio state and Alabama and, and the best programs in the coach Clemson, by the way, I think lost three or four of those kids last year. Okay. In the, the day, you just want to be the last program they're with, right? You don't care right. when they commit, just commit. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot better when they commit early and stick with you, but as long as they commit, that's, that's a whole plan. All right. Can you all give some insight? This is from J.K. Slate. Can, can you all give some insight on how much time coaches are able to spend with players during the summer and what type of activities they do? Um, you know, you're putting me on the spot and I wish I wish I knew the answer. I feel like these things have all changed, but I think it's something like 10 hours per week, I think is what the rule is during the summertime. Um, which equates like two hours a day. And, and that's if the players come in. I think if the players come into the coach's office, I think they can spend up to two hours a day or, or 10 hours a week. However, the math sort of breaks out. But as far as contact on the field, the coaches aren't allowed to have any, if, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's just the strength coach. And so it's right. like these kids on their own. Um, but JK, I'll, I'll get hopefully I'll get a better answer for you next time. I, I just feel like the rules have changed. And I, and I, I think that those are the last rules that I remember when it comes to that. All right, this is from Jason J. Cord 57. Can the current roster win the ACC? With, uh, can the current team win the ACC roster with uh, win the ACC with this roster? I apologize. What do you say? This current um, team has constructed. Can they win the ACC? I think now with the transfers, yes, they have a shot at it. I think I'd feel a lot more uh, comfortable if they had a better receiver. But like I said earlier, we're not going to lack on one soon. Um, <laughs> we're going like, to land this kid. So that'll help. I, I'm just still concerned about that the linebacker position. Somebody needs to step up. We need to see Caleb Johnson if he can really be that middle linebacker, and who's going to play next to him. If they solidify that, then I think there's no reason why they can't win the the uh, ACC championship. I, I, I'm I'm not going to pick them to win the ACC championship. I look at history after studying that board. Okay, I'm not picking them, dude. I just said it's possible. I I, I am 
I, I can't do it. I feel like something's going to happen. There's going to be something that disappoints. And linebacker to me, I, look, I, I think Caleb Johnson's going to come in and help sort of the way DeAndre Johnson did last year. The kid from, uh, you know, from UCLA that Miami got Caleb Johnson. I think he'll have a, De- a DeAndre Johnson type of effect. But that wasn't overwhelming. Like you go back and you look at DeAndre Johnson. He was a co-leader in sacks. He wasn't like some dominant. He wasn't Jalen Phillips. He wasn't some dominant force. I think Caleb Johnson comes in and just does the job. Um, and I think that position continues in there. It continues to be an area that I'm worried about. And I think there's going to be missed tackles and there's yeah, going to be place. <clears throat> now I think the defensive line is a lot better. Uh, I think the secondary will be better because they'll be coached better. Um, but between that right tackle uh, and wide receiver, those are the three positions I worry about the most. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I think the one thing that's going to be the advantage uh, or help the linebackers is like you said, that improved defensive line. And it's not just about pass rush. It's also about, you know, having to have the offense needing to commit more than one offensive lineman to to the defensive line to be able to stop them from making plays. And if this defensive line can can come at them in waves and be effective, then they're going to have to start doubling and doing things where they're going to have to take multiple offensive linemen to occupy space and leave those linebackers running free, which would help tremendously. Yeah. All right. This is from G Hernandez at GOS. Uh, 305 GH. What is your guys' record expectations going into the season, and who do you think can emerge as the number one receiver with the roster as is? Go ahead. I'll let you go first. Listen, I, I think 10 and 2 is totally possible. I think uh, with, with what they put together through the transfer portal, with this coaching staff, I mean, 9 and 3 to me would be a step forward, a big step forward. I think 10 and 2 is totally possible, though, and that's, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, 93 is probably more realistic. I think 10 and two is what I'm setting my sights on as far as the number one receiver. I mean, it's difficult to say, I think I was hoping Keyshawn Smith would show more improvement in the spring. He's still not coming down with balls on a consistent basis. He has all the talent in the world to be able to do so. Frank Lazen to me, hasn't stepped up yet. I think the guy who's going to lead the team in receiving is probably Xavier Restrepo from the receiver position. Uh, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a number one. He's just going to have the most yards. Um, I think one of these guys needs to step up. I think the guy that has the most talent to be able to do so is probably Jacoby George, um, <clears throat> but we don't know. He's not consistent enough. I agree with all that. Uh, I would say I think either Xavier Restrepo or Will Mallory or Elijah Royal will probably lead the team in reception. I think it could be a year where whoever the healthy healthiest tight end is uh, catches a lot of balls deep down the middle of the field. I think when, when we see Tyler go deep, it could be in those type of situations. Uh, where he goes to the bigger physical uh, guy down the middle of the field. And and then I think underneath, I think Restrepo catches a lot of balls. He'll lead the team and catches, I think, one of the tight ends. I, no, I don't think there's going to be – yeah, I don't think there's going to be a number one guy like Charleston Ramble last year. No. <clears throat> That's not going to happen regardless. But I think you're going to see – because you're going to see the backs involved in the passing game a lot too because you got a guy like Jalen Knight and you got a guy like Henry Paris who you catch it out of the backfield. Well, I have a stat for you that uh, I don't think oh. I used earlier. Um or at least here, I wrote about it in my story. But if you've gone numbers heavy this episode, well, because I spent so much time researching it, damn it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to uh, give it to you whether you like it or not. Michigan. OK, backs and tight ends. 120 catches last season. Receivers, 128. Yep. So you just look at ball distribution. Um, I think it's going to be similar to that. And, and you know, you know, you always want to distribute your balls even. <laughs> exactly. Um, as far as a record, I'm going to go with nine wins in the regular season. Um, I'm just, I, I think there will be one game 
whether it's injuries, whether it's just a bad day, I think Miami is, is due uh, for one of those. I'm going to say nine wins. All right. Um, all right. This is from Rick Smith, who's Kane Stealth. I've noticed a lot of players' mouthpieces dangling from their helmets before, during, and after plays. I grew up playing football in the late 90s, um, and this was always a 15-yard penalty for improper equipment. Is safety not a concern anymore? You're the player. I'll let you answer that. Um, I mean, come on, dude. Whatever. Uh, I, I don't know that. Was there ever a rule in college football that you would get a 15-yard penalty for not having your mouthpiece? That's more of a high school rule to me. Um, I mean, listen, dude, they no longer wear the neck rolls either. <laughs> that doesn't mean they don't, they're not concerned about safety. I think just, you know, it's one of those things, dude. It's the things kids do at, at this day and age. Um, do I want to bring it back to the days where everybody's looking like, uh, like Luca in that movie? Um, with with a big single bar face mask down the middle and and the big cage and the neck roll made out of like foam would that be cool would everybody looking like uh like mike allstott yeah it would be but you know what this is our day new day and age and we got to roll with it kids do dumb things all the time they'll they'll have mouthpieces in and out of their mouth they'll they'll stick it in the helmet and leave it there and forget it that happens a lot too yeah i i don't pay enough attention to the mouthpieces i'm gonna stick one in my mouth now because we've got to wrap this up so um Carlos, once again, thank you for uh, joining me here on the Wide Right Pod. Uh, make sure you check out his podcast whenever he records one again. He may not. It, this he may have spoken all of the words he needs to speak for the entire month of June tonight. Well, well look, I'm going to tease my next my next pod topic more or less. Okay, I'm going to basically compare the Miami Heat and the Miami Hurricanes. All right, I like that. That's sexy. That uh, would have saved you. Uh, would have saved us a lot of time tonight because uh, the heat season is over and the, and the cane season is a uh, long long ways away. But I'm gonna tune in and listen because I want to hear you, I want to hear you talk heat. That would be entertaining for me. Yeah, and I mean, it, it also stings last night that the freaking Boston Celtics came back and beat the Warriors and are up one nothing in the NBA Finals. That sucks. It is. It is. Um, Carlos, thanks again, man. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to be back. I know I'm going to Vegas next week. I may not ever, ever going to be back. I may not ever come back. I may just stay over there. Uh, my wife and Listen, kids. say hi to Jimmy Hoffa for me. I will. I'll let him. I'll let him know you say hello. Um, and uh, make sure you uh, subscribe to the Athletic if you've got a dollar somewhere uh, laying around. Uh, check out some of the content that's up there. Uh, we appreciate it. Uh, as always, Carlos. Thanks, and uh, we will be back on the Wide Ride Podcast soon. Peace.